So our society, uh, we love stories of greatness. Would we agree with that? We like to hear about great people. Who likes great athletes, great singers? We like great leaders in business, whatever it may be. We like stories of greatness, but what we really like are stories of greatness that have overcome uh, failures. We, we like to hear the stories about people who have achieved great things after they have overcome great failures or big obstacles. And, and some things come to mind. People come to mind. You all probably know, I've mentioned it before, but I was a huge Michael Jordan fan growing up. Any other Michael Jordan fans in here? Yeah, that means you're old like me. Everybody else are LeBron fans, I guess, right? Now, Michael Jordan was famously cut from his high school basketball team. Michael Jordan cut from his high school basketball team. And Michael Jordan, when he went into the NCAA tournament playing for North Carolina, he wasn't the, the go-to guy. It was James Worthy on, on the team who was the go-to guy. But he overcame the failures, and he hit the game-winning shot in the national championship game, which propelled him to who he is or was as a basketball player that we all know. Other people may think of someone like Dr. Seuss. Do you know Dr. Seuss? He was rejected 43 times from publishers before he got his first children's book published. 43 times. And now he's written, I think it's around 60 books that he's written, one of the, the biggest selling children's authors of all time. Uh, I think everybody in here, who's we've heard of Dr. Seuss, right? That's a big accomplishment against that huge failure. Or somebody like Bill Gates. Bill Gates, whether you love him or hate him, he's a hugely successful person, one of the, the richest men in the world. He didn't even graduate college. And then he went into his garage and started a business that we all know as Microsoft. And even though I'm a Mac guy, you still got to admire what he has accomplished. Now, most of us, we relate to the failures. Can I get an amen? I have failed over and over and over again in my life. No amen on that. I appreciate it. I don't know why you're sitting on the front row. You're making me nervous. Most of us would say we have failed over and over again, but few of us would relate to the success. Few of us would say, yeah, I've accomplished things as great as a Michael Jordan or a Dr. Seuss or a Bill Gates. Few of us would say, we have overcome those failures. Even though many of us have, we don't give ourselves credit because the world doesn't give us the credit that they give these men that I've just mentioned. But even still, even though we've experienced failures, we don't really relate as much to success. Even still, we're all in pursuit of something bigger than ourselves. We all want the better life, right? We don't want to be stuck where we're at right now. We don't want to go back in time to, to a time where we were really scraping and things weren't working out well, we want a better life than what we have right now. No matter where you find yourself in life, if you've achieved a lot of success or if you're still struggling to find success, we want the better life. So we pursue financial success. And many of you all in here have probably achieved some measure of financial success. Or we'll pursue success in relationships and we'll, we'll try to, to have the best marriage or the best friendships and pursue success in those areas of our life. And sometimes we fail in those areas of our life and we try again and we're pursuing success in that way. And some of us, 
Our idea of success is I just want to have the most fun that I could possibly have because you only live once. Some of us look for success in our families. We're pursuing the better life in our families, and, and our whole intent with our families is just to, to provide for them, to, to give them things that they can look back on and say, yeah, I had a great childhood growing up, whatever it may be. Yet, when we do achieve those things, and some of you have achieved those things, we'll look back on them at the end of our lives, or maybe you can look back now and realize it's kind of hollow. There's not a lot of meat in achieving those things. You always have to keep chasing the next level in whatever it is that you view as success. So some of us will pursue success in our spiritual lives. And we'll say, all right, I'm getting involved in church. I'm going to get in a life group. I'm going to volunteer. I, I may even teach the children on Sundays. And then we start to look successful. People may look at us and say, hey, they are an upstanding Christian, an upstanding church member. I admire everything that they're doing. But on the inside, our lives are just total messes. And we feel like failures while everybody else looks at us and says, hey, they've got it all together. So, so why does these things happen that way? Well, because on one hand, you're trying to control what success looks like. Like, this is what I have to achieve. You have some control over this. And on the other hand, you're trying to praise Jesus and say, all right, I'm all in spiritually, but I'm not doing well over here, so I'm going to give more time here and take a little time from Jesus so I can have more success in my life. And then you end up being a failure in both areas and feeling like you're not getting anywhere. We went to the beach this week, um, as most of you all know, and we had a great time at the beach this week. Um, relaxing one of the I don't even like Myrtle Beach I was telling people this morning uh, but it was one of the best trips we've ever had except um, we had to go to Build-A-Bear y'all ever been to Build-A-Bear y'all don't these are priced ridiculously just so y'all know but anyways we go to Build-A-Bear and if you've never been to Build-A-Bear the whole concept is you go in and you pick a bear or all kinds of things they've got everything you could imagine and if you pick something that you've seen on television, you're going to pay twice as much for it. So Caroline got a bear because we didn't want to pay twice as much. But she actually picked it, right? So I sat on, on the bench outside. I'm not dumb um, while Christy dealt with this. But you take it in, and then you have all the components to go with it. Uh, you can even put a heart in it. Uh, they have voice boxes you can put in these things. I mean, all kinds of things. Uh, buy them outfits. But what happens is you go and you get a bear and you let your toddler put it all together. Well, she's not a toddler, but you let your kid put it all together and you end up with a bear that she names Cinnamon and dresses like a... Did I hear pop star? Um, well, me and Shane thought it was something else. Um, but I'll let you use your imagination. What it... Anyways, it's not kill. It's a stuffed bear here, there. I was just done with it. I wasn't trying to kill the thing. I'm sorry. A lot of times, a lot of times, that's how we approach our spiritual lives. Uh, we have 
uh, Build-A-Bear theology. We'll go and we'll pick out the, the parts that we like and we'll put it all together and we'll make this funky looking thing that looks like a... Anyways, it's, it's a hybrid sort of faith and it never fulfills us. We never achieve what we're trying to achieve because we're taking parts and putting it together. It's like a Frankenstein kind of thing where the faith doesn't look anything like what Scripture tells us to look like because we're taking parts here and parts there and ramming them in, into our own personal ideas and our own lives and our own views of success, and we feel lost. So then we start looking for purpose, and we start asking God, what's your will for my life? And we're asking God, would you show us signs? What am I supposed to do with my life? How am I supposed to handle this situation? All of these things. And we get confused. So we end up living in not this, I'm worshiping Jesus mentality, it's this Jesus and mentality, meaning Jesus and I have to add something to Jesus. Jesus isn't enough. And we start adding it to it, and we, this Build-A-Bear just keeps getting built and looking like some twisted idea of faith because we want royalty. We want to be a part of the royal family, but we don't want responsibility. We don't want to put in the work that's required to really grow in our faith with Jesus. It's easier said than done when we think about it because... There's a lot of temptations in this world. I don't know what you all are tempted by, but I guarantee you are. By a show of hands, who's been tempted by something this morning? Not a person in this room. I don't believe you. Who's been tempted by something this morning? What was that? I heard something. Huh. Sleep. Nathan, stay awake. Who's been tempted this week? Who's given in to the temptation? I'm raising my hand. I'm not just giving you an example. We give in to temptations, but temptations, what we're faced with are choices. Anytime a temptation comes, we have a choice, and when we make the wrong choice, it, it develops in us habits, and those habits can even turn into addictions, and that brings us to this lifestyle that isn't godly. Even though we're wearing Jesus' clothes, we're saying we are followers of Christ, we end up not looking like it on the inside at all. And the reason for that is when we make bad choices, we're compromising. And compromising choices compromises you. If you compromise on the choices you make, you're going to compromise in your lifestyle. But we'll sit back and we'll say, I'm not compromised. I can walk away from whatever the temptation is. I can reject the temptation. I don't have to do those things. I just choose to do those things. And what we realize is that sin never seems irresistible until you want to break from it. And when you say, no, I'm not going to follow through that temptation. I'm going to step away from it. Then you realize how sucked in you are to that lifestyle that you've created that is not a godly lifestyle. And it's all of us. We all have these blind spots in our life, myself included, where we're sucked into this temptation and we give in to this temptation and then we say, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to follow Jesus and focus on Jesus. And then we realize that is not so 
easy. So we're going to look this morning at three steps that we can take and one major life principle that we can implement. And if we do those, if we follow the three steps that Paul has outlined for us and we implement this major life principle, you have a better shot at overcoming bad choices. That doesn't mean we're never going to make a bad choice. But at least if we follow what Paul has laid out for us, we have a shot to accomplish it. We're continuing in our series, Reboot, The Better Life. We're walking through the book of Colossians. And as we walk through this book of Colossians, Paul has been giving this warning where he's warning Christians in here that you you may need to refocus, to reboot in in essence, in order to ensure that you're not going to fall prey to all of these outside influences. And he's warning them as we are leading up through these first couple of chapters. He gives this warning about false teachers. Who's ever heard the phrase, wolves in sheep's clothing? We hear that phrase a lot. That's what Paul's talking about. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Wolves who are making themselves appear like they're part of the flock, a part of the church. But in reality, their whole mission is to destroy the faith. Sometimes they don't even realize that's the mission But Satan is using them in that way. So he's led up to this point, talking about wolves in sheep's clothing. But if we really think about it, probably the biggest danger to our faith and to the church is it's not a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's a sheep who's still wearing wolf's clothing. A sheep who's claiming to be a part of the flock, a part of the church. But as soon as you leave here on Sundays, you're back in the wolf's territory. You look just like the world. That may be the biggest threat that there is to the faith and to the church. When we try to walk in the world, have one foot in the world and one foot in the church and say it's all going to work out, we always fail. Every single time. It is impossible to keep one foot in the world, one foot in the faith, and accomplish what God has called you to accomplish. So what are the three steps that Paul gives us to be able to to Avoid bad choices. Well, let's begin looking in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in his glory. So the first step that we see is we need to learn before we live. We we need to take time to figure out what we really believe in. To actually become disciples of Jesus and not just churchgoers. To be able to articulate what our faith is. We have to learn before we try to live it out. We have to set our sights on Jesus. If you cannot articulate the core doctrines of the faith, you are in danger of falling prey to false teaching. If you can't explain why you believe what you believe, even in very basic terms, you are in danger of being drawn away. We have to learn before we live. 
We can't live out the life as a Christian if we don't even know what it really means. It takes focus. And really, what it takes is you have to stop living in between two realities of trying to live out what the world says is success while you're still saying you're a Christian. And that's what Paul is saying here. You have been raised to new life. Set your sights on the realities of heaven, not on what the world declares as success. I don't care how much money you have in the bank. I don't care how much you've achieved in your job. I don't even care how many years you've been married. What you've achieved in your past athletically or educationally or whatever it may be. If you're not grounded in Jesus, you're a failure. Because we are called into a life surrendered to Christ, not a life of all these, this excess that the world tells us is success. We have to stop living between two realities. But here's what happens to us. We'll say, I tried and I failed. I tried to walk the faith. I, I tried to really get plugged in. I, I tried to, to even witness to people or share Jesus with people, and it's never worked out for me. But Paul's telling us you can't continue to live in that. You can't wallow in your past defeat. If you want to achieve the better life, to achieve success, your eyes have to be on the realities of heaven, not on your past defeat. Because Satan is a liar, and he will convince you that you're a failure. And you won't lose your salvation. We firmly believe that if you committed your life to Christ, you are sealed by Jesus. You're a son of, son of God or a daughter of God. You are in the family. But you will totally lose your effectiveness. You'll totally lose your purpose because Satan will convince you that you're not good enough. When you try to stand against temptation, the enemy will convince you, oh, you can't stand against that. And if you give in, God's not, he's going to forgive you anyway. It's not going to affect anybody but yourself. Oh, it feels good, or it tastes good, or it makes me feel like I'm in another place, or if I get a lot of money, I can buy a lot of things. And then we begin to fall for the lies and begin to pursue success outside of Christ. And in that moment, Satan's winning. Because you've lost your effectiveness as a disciple of Jesus. So how do we overcome that? How do we live this idea of learning before we live out the faith? It's really pretty straightforward. It's discipleship. Are you involved in some sort of discipleship? Whether it's an intense discipleship where you're meeting one-on-one -on -one or one in a small group with, with a few people who are just really pursuing Jesus, or whether it's practicing your spiritual disciplines and really learning about those, or whether you're in a life group, or whether you even come to the program we've put together on Wednesday nights 
so that you have some tools to learn how to follow Jesus. If you're not digging into the faith, you're going to be a failure. If we have this tendency to believe, if I commit my life to Jesus, he'll change me and I'm good. And he will if you put in the work. If you don't put in the work, you don't get changed. Following Jesus is a full-time, lifelong job. It's not a moment that you say, I'm going to follow Jesus, and then you're changed, and everything's good. We're still human beings. We still have temptations, and we still fall every single day. We have to learn how to follow Jesus before we can really live out the faith that he's called us to, but we make choices that compromise us, and compromising choices will compromise you every single time. You have to put in the work. What are you doing to grow in your faith? Because this isn't it. If this is your plan to grow in your faith, to show up on Sunday mornings, you will not succeed. I was telling Jesse this morning, we were talking about all the things that we do. And right now we have several different avenues for people to grow in their faith. It's showing up on Sunday mornings, life groups. We have what we call grow groups, which are kind of just they're not really run by the church. They're just organic groups that come together. And then we have the Wednesday night discipleship thing. The most important thing on the list to me is life groups. If you can't come to Sunday mornings because you're in a life group, I'd rather you be in a life group. You will grow in your faith in that small community more than you ever will sitting in this room. Life groups, corporate worship is vital getting into a small grow group where you can just grow together and really hold each other accountable even more than you can in a life group. And then show up on Wednesday nights or whenever we do the, right now it's on Wednesday nights, and just learn, just take in what God has for you. It's work. It's not easy. I'm not pretending that it doesn't take a lot of time. It doesn't take a lot of effort. Following Jesus is hard but it's so worth it. You have to learn before you can live it out. And then the next thing Paul tells us is that you have to kill the compromise. Verse 5, So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. And then he gives a list that will probably hit every single one of us. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. Now pause there for a second. You, you may be a follower of Jesus. That does not mean that you escape consequences of sin. That does not mean that there's not still wrath coming from God. Yes, you still get to go and spend eternity with Jesus in heaven, but he sure can make life on this earth very difficult if you don't follow him. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other. 
For you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters, and He lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people He loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Step number two to avoiding bad choices, you have to kill compromise. What areas of your life are you compromising? What areas of your life are you saying, well, this sin's not so bad. I'm going to keep doing this, even though it may have just been in that explicit list that he gave. What areas of your life are you compromising? Paul says, put it to death. Act decisively. You have to make bold choices to, uh, to avoid bad choices. I follow a pastor named Skip Heitzig out of New Mexico, and he said that when it comes to living out the faith, we have to take our theology, and then it has to become neology. In, in other words, get on your knees and start talking to the Lord. Our theology just learned doesn't accomplish much, but theology, when we hit our knees, it becomes our biology. He says, you learn about God. You learn what the doctrines are. You hit your knees. You pray that He changes your life. And then that becomes who you are. And you begin walking in the faith. And it's not easy. It takes a lot of work. But we have to stop making compromising choices. Paul says to kill it. Put it to death. Jesus nailed every bad choice you've ever made to the cross. Let it live on the cross. Put it to death on the cross, not in your heart. We have to kill compromising choices. And scripture tells us we can't just say, I'm strong. I'm not going to fall into this temptation. Scripture teaches us to deal radically with sin. I mean, Jesus says if your eye causes you to, to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's pretty radical to deal with sin. We're told in Scripture not to just, just stay away. We're told to flee from sin. Get away from anything that causes us to sin. Anything that causes us to make compromising choices. Get away from it. Put it out of your life. You know, that even includes the stuff we put into our minds through our entertainment. And I don't want this to seem like a legalistic or ritualistic kind of thing. It's not what this is about. But the stuff we put in our heads comes out. And if we're putting more of the world's entertainment into our minds than we are Scripture, that's what's going to come out. I saw a statistic this week that kind of blew me away. Did you know that we are faced in one evening with more instances of sensuality or sexuality than our great-grandparents were faced over their entire lifetime. We are hit with that many images in our ads, in our entertainment, 
in the things that we hear in our social media in one evening than our grandparents would have been faced with in an entire lifetime. Are we buying into that stuff? Are we just letting that feed our mind and corrupt our heart? Is that what's coming out of you? Proverbs 1.10 talks about the need to avoid even friendships that cause you to sin. It says, if your friend causes you to sin or if a certain person causes you to sin, get away from them. What's your relationships look like? Are there people in your lives that are causing you to fall? Get away from them. If it's your spouse who's calling, causing you to fall, get counseling. Find someone to help you walk through that. Don't be ashamed of it. Go. Get the help you need. Deal radically with the things that are taking you away from Jesus. And Paul gives us that list to avoid, but then it's not just avoiding these things. He says, go on the offensive. Don't just sit back and wait. Get to work. Since God chose you to be holy, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Is that what you are taking on? Are you a person who is merciful? Are you a person who shows kindness no matter the circumstance? Are you a person who is showing humility? Are you a person who is full of gentleness or meekness? Are you a, a person who is patient with others? Are you quick to be angry? Quick to point fingers? Quick to say, I accomplished this? Are you harsh with your words? Are you impatient? Paul says you have to be on the offensive this has to be the characteristics of your life if you want to avoid bad choices. That's what a life of a disciple looks like. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 13, he says, make allowance for each other's faults. What? I got to make allowance for when you mess up? That's not fun. What if you wrong me? Make allowance for each other's faults. In other words, Paul's saying, you screwed up, I screwed up, we're cool. We're not all going to get this right. You may make me mad, I may make you mad. We're going to work this out. Because then he continues and he says, he says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you. So you must forgive others. Above all, Clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. So you can have those characteristics that are mentioned in verse 12, but if they're apart from love, you're just putting on a show. He says, clothe yourselves in love, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness, fill your lives 
teach and counsel each other with all wisdom that he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. Step one, learn before you try to live. Step two, kill the compromise. Step three, live accountably in community with other believers. We live in a community with other believers forgiving each other. You make bad choices, so do I. I may be the pastor standing up here preaching, but I make terrible choices sometimes. I try not to, but I'm just a human being. I fail just like you fail. We live in forgiveness. Paul says, forgive. Paul says, love. Paul says, live in peace. Paul says, teach. In other words, make disciples. Then he says, come together and worship. Sing psalms together. Sing spiritual songs together. Come together. Worship. If we don't do these steps, we make choices that compromise us. Compromising choices will compromise you. That's the three steps. But he gives us a principle that closes it all out. Verse 17. Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. I don't know what everyone's profession in here is. Paul says do it for Jesus. I don't know what you're trying to accomplish in your life. Paul says do it for Jesus. Is your motivation in everything that you do Jesus? Your marriage your relationships, your friendships, your job, is the motivation that underlies all of it. I'm doing this today for Jesus. And you may say, well, I, my occupation isn't to be in ministry. Yes, it is. You are all called to be ministers of the gospel because you are followers of Jesus Christ. Just because I'm up here as the pastor does not relieve you of that duty. It is my job. It is your job. It is all of our jobs to make disciples of all nations. Are you doing it all for Jesus? Do your co-workers look at you and say, he or she, they love Jesus? Or do they say, I have no idea what's different about them, but there is a difference in this person? Or do they look at us and say, hey, I'm going so-and-so after work. You want to go with me? with the expectation that you're no different than them and we're going to go and do whatever it is. Imagine if that principle played out in all believers. How would that change everything? If you go to lunch today with the intent of approaching your server for Jesus, and that doesn't mean that you've got to be Beating them over the head with the Bible, that means you're treating them with kindness, that you're gentle in your words even if they get your order wrong, that you still leave a tip when they get nothing right or never bring you a refill. Imagine how it would change everything for us if, if 
our choices and entertainment were driven by, I'm doing this for Jesus. If our relationships were driven by, I'm going to serve my friend or my wife or my husband or my partner, I'm going to serve them for Jesus. How does that change everything? How does it look in practice? There's so much noise in the world. I mean, when you leave here today, some of you have probably been on your phone on social media in here, I don't know. As soon as you open it up, you're going to start getting blasted with things that are not leading you towards Jesus. They may not even be bad things, but they're not God things. And it'll start filling your mind with things that, that just pull your attention away from the Lord. How do we fight that? How do you get air out of a bottle? You ever thought about that before? Any sort of bottle, vase, jar, whatever it is, it's full of air. This room's full of air, unless you're on Mars or something. It's full of air. So you could get you like a vacuum thing and suck all the air out so it's like there's nothing in the bottle. That seems really hard though, right? What's the easiest way? Fill it with something else. If you pour water in the bottle, all the air comes out. How do you get rid of the noise in your life? You pour Jesus in, and it pushes all the noise out. You fill your mind with Scripture. You fill your time with prayer. You, you fill your, your social gatherings with believers who are pouring into you so that you can pour into unbelievers every opportunity that you get. That's how we push the noise out. It's a process. You're not going to leave here and this week get it all right. I'm not going to leave here this week and get it all right. I've been a Christian since I was 13 years old, and I have messed up a lot of stuff in those two or three years. Took you a minute. I can't even do math. I don't know how many years that is. 25. 25 years. We're going to go to 45. Is that right? 45 minus 13? I don't know. It don't matter. I've made a lot of mistakes. But during that time, I've learned a lot about Jesus. And the more I learn about Jesus, the more I'm inclined to not make mistakes. You know, I've always been a big UT football fan. Like, die-hard UT football fan. Back in the day, me and Christy were talking about this last night. I think you and I talked about it this morning, actually. If Tennessee lost to Alabama, Florida, or Georgia, my whole week was shot. I'm not talking about, like, dinner's going to be rough. I'm going to be depressed. I'm talking about till the next ball game, I'm done. And if we lost that ball game, it was going to be bad. But the more I've grown in my faith, the less those things bother me. I mean, I'm not going to lie. If we lost last night, I'd have been mad, but I'd have been over it this morning. Kind of. Maybe not fully. <laughs> it wouldn't have ruined my whole week, though. It's a process. The more you learn, the more you can live it. The more you learn, the more you can kill the bad choices. The more you do that, the more you can live all for Jesus. And it has to begin with surrender.
Compromising choices compromises you. Where are you compromising? Where are you saying, yeah, I know the Bible says that. I know what I've been taught, but I'm okay. I'm still going to do these things. I know that it takes time. Well, I'd rather go do this. So I'm not going to put in the effort this week. What, you want three hours this week from me? You want me to go to three different things? Are you crazy? You have no idea. I've got to catch up on Game of Thrones or whatever, which you don't watch that show anyway, from what I've heard. Where are you compromising? Scripture tells us that you, you are a follower of Jesus. You have been adopted into a royal family. You are all kings and queens. Well, Jesus is the king, so you're all princes and princesses. You're in a royal family. That sounds pretty awesome. You know what else Scripture says? You're part of the royal family. Behave like it. And if you never joined the royal family, he's calling you to him today. Maybe you live a life full of bad choices and you never chose to follow Jesus. Today's the day.